Welcome to Bicycle Retail Radio, the bicycle industry podcast that brings retailers, vendors, advocates, and thought leaders to the mic for honest discussions about the latest issues facing retailers while taking an in-depth look at the person within the profession. All right, welcome. This is the NBDA News Hour, co-hosted with our friends from Human Powered Solutions. Rochelle and I are joined today by micro-mobility experts Jay Townley, Fred Clements, and Mike Fritz. I'm Heather Mason, NBDA president. The team at Human Powered Solutions, they have over 245 years of experience. They're considered the data wizards. They have a monthly newsletter called the Micromobility Reporter. This monthly newsletter is a dynamic resource for the industry, and it features timely news with in-depth analysis about the latest in human-powered transportation, including bicycles, e-bicycles, e-scooters, and rideshare. Included, they focus on supply chain issues, technology, business and consumer trends, important information for retailers, everything that is driving the marketplace. We have our monthly news feature that focuses on the articles contained within this report so we can get a more in-depth view and kind of have a firsthand seat with the experts. We've been doing this for several months now. Our listeners really like it, so we're excited to get into today's conversation. If you want to receive the email version of the resource, you can go to humanpoweredsolutions.com. There you can sign up to receive the micromobility reporter in your inbox. Let's dive in, Rochelle. Welcome, Jay, Fred, and Mike. Thank you so much for being here with us. We are really looking forward to diving into the latest issue. Thank you. We have lots to get into today. I wanted to start it with Just pointing out the title of the July letter is Wildfires, Battery Fires, Pricing Issues, and More. I wanted to start off with the article that got my attention from the Sourcing Journal. It's titled, Retail Alert, Is U.S. Consumer Spending Shifting Again? What do we need to know here? Primarily that you got to watch the consumer spending habits on a monthly basis. And what this article is pointing out is what consumers did after the pandemic is moved in large numbers from online to in-person. And now what we're experiencing is not a huge shift back to online, but a steady shift of an appreciable number of consumers back to online. And there's also a very discernible movement of more consumers are doing their shopping online, making a decision about a product online and the information they get online, then going to a brick and mortar store. So those are the two trends that this article is pointing out that is being picked up. This is primarily clothing and fashion, but that that gives us a good clue. Clothing, fashion, shoes are seeing this, and uh, that's the experience that I believe we're also seeing, or you're picking up out of the P2 groups uh, and feedback from dealers, that more consumers are coming in knowing what they want, knowing what the price is, knowing what the product selection is. And so that kind of feeds back to what should bike dealers be doing? And we've been saying this, I think, at every one of these podcasts and every chance we get, dealers need to become Mm commerce-enabled. A website that is commerce-enabled that allows them to be available to a consumer 24-7 and so that a consumer can do what they're shifting to now, which is spending more time looking at a website, making a determination about the product, and then coming into the store pretty well made the decision but there's still plenty of room for a really good salesperson to interface with them and work with them. Yeah, I think it's so important to keep an eye on what's happening in other industries. And we definitely can apply that to our industry. And yeah, the the online marketplace for retailers, I'm hearing, is hard to navigate. You know, 
We're expected to be <laughs> uh, sales experts, service experts, marketing wizards, and running an e-com website successfully is hard, but it's important to be in the game, get your website up and running and be able to be found, let people know you have the products and pay attention to what's happening. Another part of that article I think that I pulled out was maybe inflation uh, making the used bike market important. Fred, any thoughts about the used bike market? I think that's a conversation we just had in our Monday Mingle with our members and offered some strategies. Any thoughts from your side on on the importance of used bikes? Well, I think it, at least in my experience, it depends really on the retailer and the size of the store as to whether they feel that it's going to pay for them. You know, if you're used to moving a lot of units of new, uh, there are a lot of concerns about the cost, you know, the complexity of acquiring and refurbishing and then selling and basically competing with your new inventory. But James Moore, former NBDA president, has proven it can be a very successful formula, you know, used bikes are great bikes. I mean, that's the good one good thing about bikes from the consumer perspective is they can, with reasonable care, last a very, very long time and consumer can get real value out of a used bike. So I think it's something to consider, especially in an era of inflation on new product. Yeah, I, I think I would urge any any dealer to look at it. And if you've said sort of in a knee-jerk way, no, it's not for us before, Maybe look again. Mm -hmm. There are a few articles that touch on inventory and warehouse space. Let's start with the news from Eurobike, where it seems that the inventory issues were really relevant. Jay, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this came as a surprise in the sense that I'd kind of been chugging along listening to Eurobike in the European press, and they didn't say a thing about the inventory problem other than it's in North America. But obviously, when we got to summer, in Europe, it finally comes out that they've got an inventory problem. And it's one that is holding back portions of the, the business there. As you're well aware, Europe is configured differently than we are in the U.S. in that about 46 to 48% of all bicycles sold in Europe are manufactured in Europe. So it's in-country, inside the EU, as opposed to the U.S. where we're all imported from the standpoint of the bulk of the product. And so, yeah, this came as a bit of a surprise. And when I read the article and dug more into it, They've got many of the same problems that we've run into here. And then I guess significantly in the course of bridging from what happened when we read this article and looked at it to the present report, you've got a couple of brands in Europe that have gone belly up. Uh, they've gone chapter 11, Van Moof being the most prominent because that was a darling of the investment community with uh, close to 300 million in US dollar investment from venture capital people. And they're not being able to keep it afloat, couldn't get more money. They burned through it. Now, uh, you've got a lot of articles on why it happened. I don't know if, if they're near accurate, but inventory is, as we have said time and time again, it's evil. And if you can't manage it properly, you have to dig in and figure out how to because you've got to deal with it. And it's turning out that Europe and the United States have much the same problem. I don't even know where to go with that one because I'm I'm really worried about our industry right now. You know, it seems very turbulent times and it's kind of just, I don't know, almost too easy to talk about the inventory issues, but it's, I feel like we're going to see several brands really struggling right now and retailers are affected because they're losing margin. It, it's not a good circle. It, it's really, really troubling to me. It's keeping me up, frankly. I mean, Fred, what do you think about the current state of the inventory I, of the industry? I just don't want to glaze over this. I think this is a big topic right now. 
It's huge. I remember back in the day, I was in another industry and uh, went through a terrible recession. And one of the uh, industry sort of teacher slash coaches, Ed Lemko, made it a point to, and it wasn't very popular with the supply side of the industry, but he said, in a tough time, you have to prioritize your expenses. You, if you can't pay everybody, stiff the suppliers, keep your doors open, pay your employees, pay your payroll taxes, pay your rent, pay anything to keep your doors open, and then pay the suppliers another time. And in a downtime, I think that maybe has some merit. So, you know, I think, Heather, I was telling you that I was shopping for motorcycles lately and went into a motorcycle store and I'm looking at the hang tag and I couldn't help but laugh because here on the hang tag, they have the cost of the motorcycle and then they have as a line item, additional dealer margin. And it was $1,400 on a $5,000 motorcycle. It was huge. They have the audacity to call it additional dealer margin. Well, it got me to thinking that maybe there's some way. I know I know a lot of bike shops would, couldn't get away with that. Most bike shops couldn't get away with actually itemizing. We want more money. But I think finding ways to increase your margins at retail above SRP in a creative way. I know a, a dealer down south, you know, it's a comfort package with every bike. You know, so it comes with a water bottle cage and a pump. And now these are not first tier products, but he buys them cheap, marks it up so he can actually make good margin on those things. And it gets you out of the SRP game by sort of blurring around the edges a little bit. And the customer gets a good deal on on good products and the dealer gets to survive, which I'm all for. Yeah, Fred, those are great tips. And I, I also see retailers on the flip side, looking to shed expenses. And when we talk about this inventory issue, many retailers took on extra warehouse or storage space during, you know, when we were stocking up, let's say, and now retailers are starting to shed that warehouse or storage space. But I think there was an article in this that Amazon and Walmart are kind of doing the same thing. Is that correct, Jay? Scaling back operations? There are several things that are at play here, but yes, this is all based on consumer demand. And consumer demand, while it remains strong in some areas, and where the consumer right now is not buying goods, they're buying services, they're going out to dinner, it's hard to escape the hype that we got over the weekend from the duality of the, of the and I, I can't quite equate to this at my age, but you go to see the Barbie movie or you go to see the Oppenheimer movie about the atomic bomb. And yeah, I mean, the big deal is that Americans spent more on those movie premieres over the weekend than they have since like. 2017 or so. So consumers are spending on services. They're not spending on goods. You could track that back to the fact that imports from Taiwan were off 14% in the last, in June. From China, they're down about 11%. So there's no need for the warehouse space. During the COVID from 2020, 2021, 2022, going into 2023, one of the best real estate sectors to be in was warehousing. And there were warehouses going up out in the peat domes of Arizona on the on the California border. And Mike and I have recently with, with trips had gone to a couple of places where I was just amazed from the air being able to see the warehouses that had gone up. Well, what's happening is those are getting closed down. Warehouse workers are getting laid off. The space is either being sublet or just let vacant. And we're seeing that to an extent in the bicycle business in that the multi-use warehouses and the warehouse expansions are being tightened down, let go, taken off the books as quickly as as can be done. 
at this point because, uh, Heather, to your point, on the wholesale side, one of the ways to reduce cost is get rid of that extra warehouse space you don't need. Now, obviously, first, you got to sell the inventory. So that's where you've got the backup right now. It's not working to pour store all the stuff in trailers anymore because that demurrage is, is a cost like a warehouse cost. So yeah, generally across the United States, all of the large retailers, including Amazon, Walmart, Target, are all backing away. They are giving up warehouse space. They've stopped expansion and they're letting warehouse workers go. They're laying them off. Continuing to think about inventory needs here. There was an article from the Wall Street Journal on retailers trying to fix their supply chain forecasts. I'm not aware that we in the bicycle industry have anything currently in place. And I think you even mentioned in the article that it's an oversight. Can you explain that? Yeah. And you've got the NBDA is fortunate, but quite frankly, NBDA members and bike dealers are fortunate that you've got the associate members you have. The technical detail and a lot of the things that are needed in order to do better forecasting are in the hands of the associate members that you've got that offer not only the POS systems, but the system support for managing inventory, for being able to forecast and forecast to vendors. So what's occurring in the bigger retail world is exactly that. Retailers have realized a number of things that they do not want to go through the kind of problem they went through before, which was, we've talked about it, the bullwhip effect. It got totally out of control, it being ordering. And throwing out JIT or just-in-time for just-in-case was interesting when the demand was there, but when the demand shifted, came down, consumers didn't buy anymore, it was terrible. Created an inventory glut in many industries. The shoe, by the way, athletic shoe business is still suffering like the bicycle business from that problem. What they're doing that is different is the Nikes of this world have reached out and are spending a little bit of money to expand POS, to expand warehouse management software. You've heard a lot about AI and artificial intelligence. And while I'm as just, just as standoffish on some of it, I wouldn't let AI write my articles, although Fred would like me to. The <laughs> AI that's used here is saving the manpower of working through a spreadsheet to look at sales, come up with the answer on what's moving, what's not moving. Now, here's the other piece that the bike industry has been very remiss in, and that is you share it that retailers make sure they share forecasts with wholesalers, wholesalers with suppliers, and all the way up to the OEM so that the OEM can share it with with the component vendors. Because the harm that's been done in this industry is the fact that not only didn't we forecast properly, we didn't share them. And so that's also what this article points out, that part of the fix here is develop a better forecast, forecast more frequently. And once you develop that forecast, you share it with everybody. Again, there's a lot of room for improvement here. I was going to say, Jay, this is a really important topic, one that I really hope that we can work united, retailers and suppliers, to get our forecasting better. Because if we do that, less risk on the retailer becoming mini warehouses, a better opportunity for better margin for everyone, stronger industry. It just It's like a win-win there. So we really need to use the data to help us. Let's shift over. I thought this was interesting. The food delivery business is struggling. I thought at first when I read this that maybe they were struggling because of just, I don't know, all the the gun issues and the violence happening. But I think there's something else happening. It's the shift in consumer habits. What can we learn? Is there a bright side for our industry? I don't know who wants to tackle that one. Well, I'll I'll start and maybe Fred and Mike would like to just pitch in on it. But this is, you know, looking at New York and the Deliver Easters, but also Chicago 
Los Angeles, there's many large municipalities where there's food delivery. And so, yeah, what's, well, this goes back to what we discussed earlier. The consumer buying habits have shifted, and they're not ordering food to takeout to come to home so they can sit down and watch it in front of their favorite Netflix show. They're going out to restaurants. And so, consequently, the demand for food delivery has come down, and the deliveristas aren't, they aren't doing as much picking up and delivering. And, of course, the wages are going up a little bit, but there's less clientele. So, I don't know where the bike industry per se or where the bike shop trade would gain from that other than the possibility of of perhaps being able to offer more service work or more direct involvement with the deliveristic community. But yeah, it's a sign that the first subject or one of the first subjects we talked about, consumer buying habits shifting again. Here's another great sign of that is where all of a sudden everybody was ordering out because of the pandemic. People did not want to go to restaurants. You now have a shift to going to restaurants and, by the way, paying higher prices. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've been amazed at how much of, obviously, the world changed during the pandemic. And it, you know, in so many industries, partly the bike industry, too, it was a pandemic bubble of sorts. And now the bubble has popped or we're, we're returning back to more normal behaviors in many cases, maybe office workers, that's one thing that'll stick with more homework. But I've been kind of surprised at how inflexible and how not just one industry, not just bikes, fell for the, you know, the over-optimism of COVID. And then what I think is, at least in hindsight, obvious that it's going to return back towards the middle a little bit and how hard it is to make those adjustments. Once you've staffed up, once you've made investments you know previously we mentioned warehousing and all that it's hard to switch quickly back to a more normal operating mindset it seems to me yeah good point fred moving on to one of the other hot topics that was in this article is the mention of online sales i know bicycle retailers really struggle with online presence some just want a website so that they can be found by new new and existing customers. Others want to sell merchandise on their website. Others just use it for scheduling service and rentals. Can you talk about your recommendation in the article to deploy an effective commerce-enabled website with social media connections as a marketing and sales component of a bike shop customer service? Yeah. As you have already pointed out, as Heather's already pointed out, it is not just as simple as putting up a website. This is probably one of the lessons because what's occurring as you watch online, the big issues May, June, July have been the pricing. Whereas uh, what the article, the core of this article is online pricing has come down. It's abated. And part of this goes to the fact that consumers are being more picky. They're shopping. They're going from, you know, from store to store online. They're doing it to the comfort of their bedroom before they make a decision where they're going to go buy it, either online and you know, now we're getting more prominently going to a store because there's better service, there's better look at product, you can feel it. So the the online process is like the retail process. It is a retail process. Look at it as an extension of your sales force where you've got to look on that sales floor every day. And Heather, you've done this because you've been a dealer and you've worked with staff. And Fred's done this as the uh, dealing with a bunch of uh, bike shops as the executive director of the NBDA. We used to call it in bike. When I was in the bicycle retail business, it was shape up. Half an hour before we opened the door, we took the staff through, looked at product, talked about what needed to go, what we didn't have. And more importantly, we looked at 
while trading values, we looked at all sorts of things that were what, what was happening today, what's based on what the consumer is telling us. You need to do the same thing with the online presence and with the social media. So if I've got a commerce-enabled website, you know, one of the things I'll want to do is look at which social media can I support, what, how much bandwidth do I have, do I want to be on Facebook? I understand Twitter doesn't exist anymore. Overnight now it's X, but whatever. You got to pick your social media and in turn, treat it like an extension of your sales force, your marketing plan. Update it, put the same information in, shift the product around, have that shape up with your website sitting or your webmaster, whoever that may be, sitting with your sales force as you go through that process and make sure that's as current and concurrent as your live facilities are and as your store is, just as responsive, just as up to date. What I've just said is you got to spend money. It's not just put up a website and walk away. Now you're looking at bandwidth. Now we're looking at commitment to a sales tool. But I think if you're going to commit to it, Heather, again, you're used to this. Tell the dealer that there's a percentage that they're going to go after of their sales and of their revenue from the online, not only to pay for itself, but to add to the overall contribution of the profitability for the store. Then just treat it like it's part and parcel of the sales plan. Have you heard of P2 groups and wondered what they are? P2 stands for the Profitability Project. And while profitability is at the focus of everything we do, we do so much more. P2 group members share their expertise and their insights. They ask questions and they exchange resources to make sure every member is profitable and successful in every aspect of bike shop ownership. Reach out today so we can tell you more. Yeah, it has to be intentional. You know, too often I think we do things just to go through the motion and check them off the list. And we're not intentional. We're not measuring the return. We're not setting goals. We're not being very clear about the systems in place so we can we can maximize the profit potential of everything we're doing and just the interaction and experience for the customer. So definitely be intentional with what you're doing. Have systems, have employees, the right employees in the right seat working on on your website for you. Having a goal, what, 10%, maybe a little bit less these days, whatever your goal is, every shop's going to be different of your sales revenue. And you have distributors and brands who will work with you and make it easy to be active in e-com. There's several distributors who will make it very easy and do a lot of that work for you. So just get involved, get educated. If you need help, let us know. I love this conversation that I I could do a whole podcast just on this conversation, Jay. <laughs> but I feel like Mike, we got to bring Mike, we got to get Mike in. So let's shift over to some e-bike news. We had a lot of e-bike news in this month's reporter. Uh, I hated to see the article about FDNY, that there are more deaths linked to lithium-ion battery fires. Mike, give us an update of what's happening in New York City and beyond, I guess. As much as I hate to say it, you shouldn't be surprised. Nothing has changed, per se. I mean, politicians are making noise about doing this, that, and the other thing. And I think there is one development that is going to have a positive impact, and that's the concept of setting up safe charging stations where the deliveristas can charge their batteries overnight so that they're not in their apartments. It's a good thing to get a charging battery out of an apartment because if it fails, not only is the family in the apartment affected, but his neighbors up and down are going to be affected. So that will be a good thing. But in terms of the frequency of these fires, 
nothing's changed. All the battery packs are still out there. The deliveristas are still using them. If anything, you know, as, as we're suffering through some of these significant heat waves, that could very well exacerbate the situation. I saw an article this morning. Uh, we know that the West and Southwest are experiencing record-breaking heats of 110, 115 degrees during the day in Phoenix or Tucson or, or Death Valley or wherever it might be. Death Valley is 130 degrees. The article was suggesting that uh, car batteries are going to start having, electric car batteries are going to have to start having problems. Lithium-ion batteries don't like heat. <laughs> you know, that heat can be generated internally by a uh, defective cell or an overcharged condition, or it can be uh, introduced uh, externally, being, you know, a battery parked out in the sun on one of these ludicrously hot days. So there's really no light at the end of the tunnel at this juncture. You know, until we can purge the market of the substandard battery packs that are at the root cause of these issues, uh, I don't think we should be surprised. I've got to say a little bit of good news. It's been a quiet week so far. Uh, I report that I monitor the uh, NYC FireWire, which is a service that talks about all of the calls that the New York City Fire Department are called out on. The last, <laughs> I'm going to jinx it, and I pray to God I'm not, but the last lithium-ion battery fire reported on NYC FireWire was Saturday. It was last Saturday, and it was a fire in an apartment in a 17-story building at 5 o'clock in the morning, which fits the profile. You know, deliveristas are bringing their bikes to their apartment because they have no other safe place to put it. They're plugging in the battery charger, and they're going to bed. And, you know, that's a formula for disaster. So, you know, one other positive development is NYFD and, and the New York City Police Department uh, are starting to crack down e-bike shops. I guess that's a good news, bad news sort of thing. There's a number of bad actors in New York City. We know that. That's basically the cause of the problem. And, uh, you know, we've all seen the horror stories where, where the shops have got a wall set up with partitions, plywood partitions, stacked with batteries, with tens of, if not hundreds, of battery packs on charge. And the chargers are all connected on power strips running from extension cords. Uh, you know, and this is in a, in a storefront on the first floor of a three or four or six or 17-story building. They're going into these shops. Uh, New York City has promulgated rules and regulations for safe charging practices, and it has to do with the fact that you don't use a power strip and batteries have to be spaced so far apart, yada, yada. They're going into bike shops and finding those shops that are not adhering to those regulations, and they're basically issuing a citation that says, you have to fix this, you have to come into compliance with our charging guidelines in a week. We'll be back in a week. If you haven't corrected this deficiency, we're shutting you down. And unfortunately, that's impacting some of the shops that sell good bikes. How do you define a good bike? A bike from a brand that is taking its responsibility seriously with respect to sourcing quality battery packs. But, you know, again, if they're not following the NYC battery charging guidelines, they're going to be subject to this action. And, and again, when, when it's a storefront on the first floor of an apartment building, even if good dealers are being impacted, it's generally speaking a good thing because for every one of the sketchy shops that they shut down, it's going to save lives in the long run. So, But it's not slowing down. As I say, there's been only one, and the last one uh, that I saw was last Saturday. But I pray to God I'm not going to open up my smartphone and check the uh, app to see that something tragic has happened just because I mentioned it. We did hear that the New York Federal... or New York Fire Department issued vacate orders to two e-bike businesses. Is that what you just talked about? Yes, yes, yes. Their enforcement action has geared up. I expect that there's going to be more publicity about this because the New York City government has to be seen as doing something. And this is potentially an effective action. I mean, if they can address some of these really hazardous charging scenarios, 
intensely in densely populated blocks and, and apartment buildings, it'll be a good thing. But yes, you know, this is a big deal. The other, I guess, good news part of this is is the whole situation is getting a lot of publicity. So you've got to hope that deliveristas and other citizens are beginning to realize that, you know, this is an issue and they need to be proactive in terms of their own safety. And they need to find, uh, you know, if, if you're a deliverista and you know that the battery packs that you're using were sourced from a questionable place, Alibaba.com, Amazon, wh- whatever it might be, you need to take some precautions. I don't know what those would be. I don't know if, if they can find a place outside to charge them until these safe charging stations are established. I don't know what that would be. But even just not charging overnight when you're asleep with these battery packs in your room. Now, that's not a guarantee that the pack's not going to fail if the pack has been damaged by some other event during the course of its use. It doesn't have to be on a charger to fail. So that's why it's so important that we purge the market of these questionable quality packs and start replacing them with packs that comply with applicable regulations and standards. Yeah. And, you know, I do think we're making some headway there from the letter that the CPSC sent out before urging brands and suppliers to certify to or test to UL2849. I do feel that more brands, suppliers are moving that direction, especially with the strides that New York City has made. And in just a couple of days, we're recording this on July 25th, but on July 27th, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is holding a hearing in Maryland to discuss several things. One thing on the panel, the most important being lithium-ion batteries and how we navigate the problem and talk about solutions forward. We can't talk about the outcome of the meeting yet, but we can talk about what we hope, you know, what maybe in our opinion is the importance of this meeting. Maybe Jay, you want to kick it off for our listeners. You know, when this comes out, it'll be post-meeting, but you know. Yeah. And we, you know, three of the five of us are getting ready to get on airplanes and fly tomorrow to Washington, D.C. for this hearing on the 27th. It's a big deal. It is important. I don't think that the industry has yet got its head around how important it is. I know the NBDA has. I mean, the NBDA, Heather, you and Rochelle, the whole staff realize and the board realize the importance of this as we do at Human Powered Solutions. But this is the Consumer Product Safety Commission reaching out and asking two things of the experts, both in the industry and the lithium-ion battery industry and supply side. First question is, why is this happening? And the second question is, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. In an environment where we've got not a huge amount of support for what the Consumer Product Safety Commission does, Mm -hmm. which is protect American consumers. And we are very aware in the bicycle business that especially bike retailers and bike shops didn't receive a lot of forewarning, a lot of education, certainly in no training as to what to expect relative to this fabulous energy source for batteries and for powering electric bicycles that we've got available to us. And electric bicycles certainly represent a very positive way to deal with the environmental problems that we're facing in this country. But Poorly done lithium-ion batteries are a hazard, as Mike has described. I would also point out that really good, well-done lithium-ion batteries have a probability of failure. Not huge, very small, as Mike says, it's minuscule. But you have to deal with them, lithium-ion batteries as an energy source, carefully. You have to understand how to deal with them, like, as Mike has pointed out for years, like gasoline. Society knows how to deal with gasoline. We do not and have not taught 
have not educated consumers and dealers and retailers how to properly manage lithium-ion batteries as an energy source. Right. So all of that is being addressed on the 27th. It's being jammed into a one-day hearing. But out of it, I think it is the responsibility of the folks that are presenting, the industries, battery industry, the bicycle industry, especially bicycle retail shop business, to carry this forward, to figure out, A, we don't have to like each other. We just have to work together. And let's, I know, Heather, education is a key issue with the NBDA, but it's a key issue across this whole issue. New York has a totally different profile and reason why Fire Commissioner Kavanaugh is going to be the fourth person to present on the 27th. And we already know what she's going to say about the number of deaths and fires, and they're tragic, and they need to stop, and they're real, and the bicycle business is involved in it. It's not just somebody else. So I think that we have both a huge situation we have to deal with, an important issue, and for bike shops, I look at it as, let's turn it into an opportunity. Not the deaths, but what we could do in a positive way about selling lithium-ion battery-powered product and the successors to that product. When it becomes safer and safer, let's have a market out there that we can really be proud of from the standpoint of the contribution it's making to society. So we've got to get by this very important set of hearings to deal with how do we regulate. And I I don't want to go into the detail here, but (laughs) we right now, the United States does not have a starting place. Mm -hmm. If anything, I would say we don't have a clue. And we're going to try to correct that, but I'm not sure that we'll get that message across. So how do we regulate? How do we educate retailers and consumers? And we educate them about what is safe use? What are the things not to do? What should they do? So I'll end it with that and let Mike and, and Fred comment as they see appropriate. But I think this is just the beginning. And the industry, quite frankly, I think the industry is going to have to change direction from the standpoint of where it's investing time and money. And I'll leave you with a thought that I'm going to put editorially into the next newsletter. And that is that there is nothing worse than a bad fact. Mm. Anybody else on that happy note? Well, I'll just make one comment, uh, Jay, and it, it reinforces what you're saying. From an industry perspective, there is a tremendous amount of confusion at the distributor side of, of the business, if you will. You know, the industry doesn't know who's going to regulate what and how and how it's going to get certified and, you know, what they need to do to comply with local and federal regulations, what regulations are in the pipeline. We are really sort of sitting on the edge of the cliff here wondering what's going to happen next. Hopefully, coming out of the meetings on Thursday, we'll have a little bit more clarity. But clearly, there's a problem. Clearly, there's a problem. And the unfortunate part about it is, is the problem is with a very, very, very important technology. We cannot discount the value of lithium-ion battery chemistry. It is the energy storage methodology that's enabling clean transportation. And on all levels of the spectrum, everything from semi-trucks to steamships, to bicycles. And we need to figure out how best to manage it, both from a quality perspective, from an engineering and technology perspective, from a science perspective. There's lots of, I mentioning this earlier to Jay, there's lots of news articles surfacing about improvements in, in the technology in terms of alternate chemistries, alternate methodologies of constructing a lithium-ion battery. But this is the energy supply for the foreseeable future, and we've got to learn how to live with it because it is vital to addressing the climate change crisis that is becoming so obviously important to the world. So it's, 
like I say, I hope we'll, we'll have a little clarity coming out of Thursday. I'm not real optimistic, but at least we're heading in the right direction. And if we get all the parties moving in the right direction, we'll achieve something, hopefully, in the relatively near term. Yeah, I feel like we've been continually playing catch up when it comes to e-bikes and getting everyone on the same page. There's a tremendous opportunity for the local bicycle retailer, the specialty bicycle retailer, when it comes to servicing quality e-bikes to have a really great forefront in doing so. We are service centers. We are skilled, qualified technicians. And so if we can get collectively as an industry around how we're going to safely transport e-bikes, how we're going to educate our retailers to handle lithium-ion batteries in-store, how we're going to educate our retailers on best repair practices, how we're going to educate consumers on best practices using their e-bikes. There's so much here, but we need to get together on it ASAP. Recycling. Recycling is going to be a huge issue. You know, recycling gives us the opportunity to recover a lot of the critical elements that are in short supply in the world. So recycling is critically important. And, you know, that all, all that stuff needs to be worked out. Yeah. So I'm really hopeful for the next couple of days, the experience that we'll have an esteemed panel, very proud to be part of it and proud to go with our friends at Human Powered Solutions down to Maryland and make this important presentation along with people for bikes and truck bicycle representative will be there as well and our friends from UL. So we'll have more on that, I'm sure, in coming issues. Let's go ahead and dive into advice as we move into August 2023. Fred, let's kick it over to you. I know you love this question. I know you love this part <laughs> of, the, of the episode. Thinking about retailers, focus for 2023 for August. Where's your head at? Well, I promise not to talk too much about motorcycles on this call, but this item is I'm going to talk about motorcycles a little bit. Because I've been following a guy on YouTube, and he's written books. His name's Greg Widmar, and he is a motorcycle rider training expert. He teaches how to be safe in traffic, lane positioning, cornering, braking. And he talks about practicing and training and being prepared. So it struck me that there's some parallel between what he teaches and I think a need in the bicycle industry. He says that in his teachings and the feedback he gets on his videos, that he has many people who come to him and say, I don't agree with that. I have 30 years of experience. Who are you to tell me what to do? And he, his comeback is, you may have 30 years of experience, but you're untrained. You're still a beginner. In his jujitsu, he calls it motojitsu world, there's white belts, and then you move blue belt, and you move up to finally you're a black belt expert. And he has a whole curriculum set up for how quickly can you stop the motorcycle, how tight a turn can you do, and you graduate through these belts. We have people in our industry that have been at it for a long time, like these riders that he talks about, and they're still beginners because they haven't trained themselves. They haven't accessed the available education. So as Whitmer says... You know, riding a street motorcycle, and I'm not suggesting anyone do this, that a lot of car drivers are distracted. They're on their phones. They're angry. They're drunk. And the road conditions are unpredictable. You have potholes. You have gravel. But this is known. This is not a surprise. So your defense is skill and learning and practice on your motorcycle. So it, it strikes me that Bicycle retailers similar. It's full of potholes. 
you can't control the economy. It's going to go up and down. You can't control the vendors having oversupply or discounting when you've paid full price for things. Consumer trends will go up and down. Like a bad road or a bad driver, this is something that you can't control, but that you know is a fact. And so his argument, and I would make this just, <laughs> this maybe tortured analogy a little bit, but you know, if a car driver pulls left in front of a motorcycle and you're forced to respond, and let's say it causes an accident, who's at fault? Well, obviously the car driver broke the law, turned in front of you, but they do it all the time. Mm. What can you do about it in the bike industry? What can you do with your business during a downtime? And the other point he makes is it's difficult to learn if you're too self-critical. Everyone makes mistakes. One of his principles is there are no mistakes. Now, it's a cliche sounding thing. There are no mistakes, only learning opportunities. The only mistake you make is not learning from your quote unquote mistake. Mm. And so I think that's, I really got a lot out of this that don't blame the economy. Don't blame the suppliers. Not that everyone's doing this, but what's your role in it? What can you do about it to manage your business carefully? Do you have training, consistent training? Do you practice regularly? Do you Coach your sales staff, for instance. Are you on it? You know, do you plan? Do you have a mentor or mentors such as the P2 group where you can share experiences? Because you can't just sit there and be a victim. As Whitmer says, don't ride a motorcycle. No one's telling you to. It is dangerous out there. Well, don't be a bike dealer then. You know, if, if you are off put by this and you can't handle the known craziness of the market and you know, we're a very scrappy bunch and I have a lot of respect for bike dealers that stay the course through all these things. But to be open to education, be open to change. Don't be that 30 year experience, still a beginner person. I love it. That is fantastic advice. And as you know, our listeners, you can hear us. I can see everyone's faces and I, <laughs> I saw Jay light up and yeah, Mike as well and Rochelle. So thank you, Fred. That was excellent advice. Rochelle, I'll pop it over to you. I was going to say the same. That's a fantastic analogy. Thank you, Fred. Moving on to Jay, where should our suppliers be focused? Well, if Fred is, I think, given a really good set of parameters, ideas, thoughts for the retailer, I think from a supplier standpoint, there's a lot to learn from that, but openness. We, unfortunately, in the last 20 years, maybe 30 years, have become I think, too closed. The supplier side of the business has become too insular and has not communicated either upstream or downstream effectively. So I think part of this is, despite the current economic problems, I would suggest that every supplier in this industry, big and small, from Pon, who is huge, by the way, through Trek Specialized Giant, there's a public company, Merida, I think they all should look very seriously at how they can emulate what QBP has done from the standpoint of becoming a B Corp. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to become a B Corp, but look at what they went through Mm. and study that as a supplier. What is your responsibility to society, to your employees, to your customers, to your retailers? 
and begin to think seriously about that as we look at the future. Because as Fred said, the retailers have to rethink, have to step back and train and have to open their minds. So do the suppliers, in my opinion. And so part of this is suppliers doing what we talked about earlier in the podcast, and that is reaching out and communicating upstream. Let's find out what we need to do to work with our OEMs, with everybody in our supply chain to make this better and to communicate what's going on. And downstream, let's communicate with our retailers. Let's do this honestly and in a straightforward way. Now, I realize that what I've just espoused is Pollyanna because there's some, there's some hardcore cases out there. There's people that would laugh at hearing this. But I do not think that the arc of the future will allow them to laugh anymore. Mm. Regulatory pressure, environmental pressure. I just spent, I was telling Mike this yesterday, I talked to Mark Sani, who many of you know. Many people on this podcast will know who Mark was the publisher of Bicycle Retailer and Industry News, an old friend of both Fred and I. And we talked about weather and the problems that, as Mike said, that you talk about of heat. Take a look at the latest information that came out today from People for Bikes relative to where people are cycling and where people aren't cycling. And what you'll see is the arc where the heat domes are, are the minuses, where people are not cycling. Why not? They can't go out and cycle in that weather. And so these are realities that the supplier community is going to have to wake up to and start to deal with. As I said, there's nothing worse than a bad fact. And I think we in the bicycle industry, unfortunately, have accepted what was easy, simple, felt good, but they were bad facts. And so consequently, we're concentrating on fixing things that we can't fix instead of concentrating on the things like educating consumers and retailers about lithium-ion batteries as the future and how to manage them and why something like de minimis is a bad, bad thing relative to the cheap, hazardous e-bikes and e-bike batteries that are being let into the country because people wanted fashion. So I'm just from a supplier standpoint saying, guys, come on, let's sit down and get real and talk about the future and drop the Pollyanna thing, please. Mm -hmm. I'm old enough. I don't want to hear it anymore. I think what we have to do is begin to work together, communicate together. And I'm dead serious. This sounds good, but this is not because I think it's nice. I think it's because we have to. Yeah, Jay, I'm 100% with you. Like We need to stop talking and we need to get together and do something or we're not in a very good spot right now. So great advice. And we're going to continue to bring forth all the resources that we can as an organization because our retailers and our suppliers, our advocacy groups, everyone is important. We all play an integral role. Okay, Mike, over to you. E-bikes, August 2023. Where are you at? Where's your brain at? You know where my brain is at, Heather. My brain has been focused on these damn batteries for longer than I care to admit. I guess in closing today's podcast, I basically, well, first off, to emphasize something that Jay just mentioned, I was having a sandwich earlier today while I was watching CNN. And there was a story on CNN about coral dying off. Apparently, one of the things that will kill coral in the ocean is high water temperatures. They were actually saying that there are temperatures associated with some coral reefs. And I didn't, I didn't get the location, but the water temperatures are in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that's bath water. And, you know, we're killing this planet. And the good news is, is we're doing something 
that in the long run can have a very beneficial effect, but we all have to get on board and get it done. Back to closing remarks relative to this podcast. My observations are maybe more short-term than, than friends and Jay's. If you're an e-bike dealer in New York City, make sure you understand what New York's guidelines are relative to charging battery packs and make sure that you're charging accordingly, because if you're not, you're going to get shut down. And it's a pretty traumatic experience to have somebody come in with a badge that says that, you know, fix this or you're out of business. And basically, the second thing is to all of our dealers that are listening to this podcast, please be aware of some of the the guidelines that we've promulgated relative to safe handling and storage of battery packs in your stores. You know, Jay mentioned it, the finest battery pack in the world can fail. The likelihood is minuscule, but it's still a possibility. And, And when these things go, it's a scary scenario. So it never hurts to adopt the protocols that we've recommended that will mitigate the ramifications of a fire if it happens in your store. So please just be careful. Don't blame the batteries again. This is a technology that we must have. We're working on getting it to be safer than it is right now. But in the meantime, we have to be cognizant of the ramifications of improper use, storage, handling, et cetera, et cetera. So please pay attention to the batteries in your inventory. Please read the guidelines that we've published. If you have any questions, please reach out. Happy to clarify them. These protocols and recommendations are evolving as we learn more, you know, in cooperation with our friends at UL and other various agencies. But the point is, is, as Jay points out, we haven't done a very good job of educating. We're working on it. We're working on it for dealers. People for Bikes is about to publish their revised owner's manual for electric bikes. There's a big chapter in there about advising consumers as to how to properly use, store, charge, et cetera, their lithium-ion batteries. And that's all really, really good information. If people adhere to it, the likelihood that we're going to have more tragedies similar to what we've seen in the past is going to diminish. So please be careful. A lot of information, great information from everyone today. Thank you. We cannot thank you enough for coming on and sharing your expertise with our listeners. So they and all of us are able to stay up to date on the important topics facing the industry. Thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry, dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If it is your first episode, we urge you to take the time and listen to our past episodes. Support the show by first subscribing, then share your favorite episode online with friends. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for editing and promotional graphics. Music provided by Joel Picard.